Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate Marchand, and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Dr. Caroline Dunder, who's a licensed psychologist. Good morning for you, Caroline. Yes, good morning and good afternoon to you. So, Caroline, can you explain to the listeners a little bit about your background? Um, so, I've been a licensed clinical psychologist for the last 20 years. And I specialize in working with kids and teens and their families. And I say that I'm kind of obsessed with getting them unstuck. And usually they have a lot of big emotions. That's what I've boiled a lot of what I do down. But I work specifically with anxiety, depression, ADHD. But really, it's a lot about getting families and kids unstuck and understanding where they're at so they can move forward and find the skills to tr thrive. So my goal in therapy is not just to help them move beyond what their crisis is, but also to kind of build the skills that they can use to move forward. I joke that my job is to work myself out of a job. <laughs> and then I recently wrote a book called um, From Surviving to Vibing, Filling in the Gaps, Trying to Get What I Do in the Office. I co-authored that with Karen Montgomery. Um, to try to get what I do in the office more accessible outside of my office. So what you're describing is the child, teen, family unit, where I'm hearing like rather like a knotted ball of wool, it just becomes a tangled mess that if teased apart. Yes, can be. I find that when everybody's on the same page, it works better. Um, when everybody understands what's going on, it has a little bit of skin in the game, if you will. And that means we're changing not just one person, but you're changing within the context of where they live. Gosh, so I reached out to you, Caroline, because I'm very aware of the prevalence of labeling. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when I was a kid, I don't remember anybody having dyslexia, ADHD, or autism, just the endless number of labels. And now it seems... I want to say like the majority of a classroom does, over 50% of a classroom does. What has, what, what's gone on with all this labeling over the last 30, 40 years? Well, I believe that some of it is increased awareness mm -hmm. uh, that there is actually challenges that need to be addressed. So there's an increased awareness, increased evaluation that has brought to light and really supported a lot of people that really didn't understand themselves and just struggled in school or maybe dropped out or done things like that. So I think Part of the increase is very positive that we're seeing because they now can address the different issues that are there. Uh, the other concern I think you have is, is there over-labeling? Are people normalizing what, well, actually, I guess it's not normalizing. It would be people might be pathologizing what might be normal experience of anxiety or depression. Or is it that, for example, the environment that we live in it's also causing us to see more anxiety, depression, or ADHD, that the there's not a great fit sometimes for what we're doing in our environment culturally and um, what we're expected to do. And that could be the demand on, I think, a lot of kids and adults is higher now than it used to be in a different way. Certainly, that's something I've wondered. Uh... We're looking at abnormal environments and expecting everybody to fit into it. And if you don't fit into it, it's not the environment that's abnormal. It's the child that's abnormal or the person that's abnormal. Right. And I think it's all done in the guise of trying to help support and understand so that we can meet the needs and kind of have a uh, 
meeting the kids where they're at, if you will, um, whether or not there's a label or not a label. Uh, I, I do seem I will diagnose people with, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, major depression, ADHD and those types of things. But a lot of times I also take a larger approach to treatment and thinking about that basically when kids have big emotions and challenges with behavioral issues, it's a lot of a nervous system regulation issues. Um, kids and adults for that matter are becoming more dysregulated or part of it is learning how to regulate our nervous systems and build resilient pathways in our brains to adapt to things differently. So what would that mean? What would the dysregulation mean? Because Again, I sometimes wonder if the environment is so abnormal that people can be labeled as being dysregulation of their emotions, that actually the environment is driving um, a frustration and anger. Right. Uh, And really, when I think about when emotions become a problem, I'm looking at frequency. How often is it happening? How long is it lasting? What's the intensity of it and how much is it getting in the way of life? And that's really how we determine whether our emotional states are causing us significant problems. And we're really looking for patterns in that, in any of those areas. So that's when things become a problem. I'm not sure if that answered your question directly, but I think it's important to kind of understand that sometimes we do have normal reactions. So if I lose my job or I have a change in my job, even if it's something I'm looking forward to, that can create a lot of stress. It's also a lot of stress, for example, to figure out what you're doing in high school and feel like you have to know what you're doing before you graduate. And that creates a lot of pressure and that can create an ongoing anxiety and stress in a lot of youth, at least that what I'm seeing in my area, which is a more suburban area where there's a lot of achievement oriented um, uh, interests in figuring out what we're supposed to do. There's nothing that will produce anxiety more than feeling like you have to have it all figured out right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the drive or the desire for a child to be perfect and be the highest achiever they can be. Right. And the With- demands to get into, for example, some of the uh, more elite schools or getting into, quote unquote, the good college. I think the demands are harder. The ability to get into those are harder than they were 20 years ago because of the opportunity. There's more opportunities for many people. There's more people. So I think there's also that extra demand where it actually is harder. I think about being the salutatorian in my high school class and I see what people are doing now to be salutatorian. And I'm like, there's no way I would have been able to do that same thing in this time period. I so often look at the garden, Caroline, and I think if a plant's not thriving, has it got enough water? Has it got enough sunshine? Is it in the right type of soil? And I don't blame the plant for the fact it's not thriving <laughs> or leave right. the plant as a failure. I move it to a spot that's going to suit it better. Right. Um, and so there's a peony, for example, that I moved in the autumn and it's absolutely bursting right now. Right. So it wasn't the plant that was the problem. It was the location that was the problem. It was the environment that wasn't best suited for it. And I so, time, so often wonder if it's exactly the same principle for people, but we neglect to apply that. We ne- neglect to look at their wider environment and whether the environment 
is not as optimal as it can be for the person to thrive. Absolutely. I think that a mismatch in environment and the individual can certainly cause a lot of anxiety and depression. That being said, sometimes there are things that we can change, mm -hmm. but sometimes we can't transplant um, the child or the adult into a different location. And so part of it is thinking about how do we manage where we're at within the system that we have? Certainly there's a need for change within the system, but changing infrastructure takes a lot of time. Yeah. And figuring out maybe what works for your child or works for you over time is going to continue to change. But I do think that it's a great approach to think about what do I need to do, not just to pull the weeds, right? Mm -hmm. Don't just pull what's wrong. Don't just focus on the things that are wrong. But what if you're nurturing what's around it? What if you're fertilizing? What are you growing to help support the self and support your kids and developing and coping rather than just pointing out all the weeds? I've been really cynical, Caroline. Is that sometimes <laughs> I'm very skeptical about sometimes is there a drive for labeling in terms of having a label enables an access to funding for support? Yes. That label sticks first. <laughs> I mean, in oh, schools, you need a short term. In schools, for example, there's a combination of a lot of informal supports. But in order to get formal support, you really do need to have a diagnosis. Uh, and most of those diagnoses, though, do require some level of impairment. So it's not just a willy nilly, and it's hard to get some of those services and get the diagnosis that schools need to provide actual pull out services or support. Outside of that, they do have a lot more in place for reading specialists between, you know, ages one or grades one and three, where they're trying to help provide some support for the kids who might be falling behind or having some challenges, you know, without necessarily labeling them yet, uh, which I think is a nice shift from, I think, 20 years ago when basically if you weren't identified, you basically had to fail and you had to be two standard deviations below the your IQ in terms of achievement to really get any services. So it could be that we're going from, okay, we didn't really have enough and we didn't address things enough to, okay, now we're way over here and now everybody is wanting to have things addressed too. So I, I think there's a, the truth lies in the middle usually. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm very thankful that some kids are getting identified and support a lot earlier than they used to. And there's not clear evidence to understand that it's just an increased awareness and increased labeling. There could also be true increased prevalence of these problems and disorders. And I don't know exactly why that is, um, but I don't think we can just say, well, we're just labeling everybody. I think it's a common, it can be a combination of those things because there's a lot of people that are also not being labeled and not getting treated. <laughs> what are the negative? I mean, the positive is of being given a diagnostic label in terms of the access to support that's available to you and funding that's available. What, but what are the negative consequences of it? The negative consequences is when I think for anxiety and depression in particular, if we start to define ourselves by that. I am depressed. I am anxious. Well, where do you do? What do you do with that? Where do you go with that? That's like, I am anxious, period. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes if we use that as a defining characteristic of ourselves, or if we use it as like an excuse to continue to not be able to engage and live the life that we need to live, then that's also problematic. So I think those are the dangers in having a label if it becomes who we are. And then becomes a use as an excuse for not achieving your potential, perhaps. Right. I kind of think about depression and anxiety very similar to, say, asthma, right? You don't say, you know, like, you. I guess you can say I'm an asthmatic, but typically that's not the first thing people lead with. And it's not something they share right away because it's not necessarily the defining characteristic. In certain situations, you'll figure out what you need to do to take care of it and manage it. And sometimes it can lie dormant. Sometimes it really doesn't get in the way of your life, but you're aware and you can take care of it whenever it happens. And I look at anxiety and depression and mental health issues very much having often a cyclical kind of course. And once we can figure out kind of what we need to do with it, it can kind of take a backseat potentially. But it doesn't mean you might still not have some spikes here and there, depending on what the triggers are, depending on what the situations. Again, the advantage of understanding depression and anxiety, even outside of having a full diagnosis, is figuring out that it's actually okay sometimes to feel anxious or depressed. It may actually be a authentic reaction to an approach an appropriate reaction to the situations that you're living in. Yeah. So maybe the answer isn't doing it all. Maybe the answer, maybe your stress of trying to do it all. Hello. I can, I can raise my hand to that. Might not be um, necessarily a problematic anxiety reaction, but it also may be a, a sign that maybe I do need to kind of think about where do I need to plant myself? Yes. Or change? What do I need to nurture in order to kind of decrease my anxiety and my stress? And I feel like as parenthood is impending, I feel not, it's not impending. Let me change that. But with parenthood, that changes a whole host of things that you can't know ahead of time. Everybody says, oh, it'll change your life and yada, yada, yada. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm a parent, this is how it's going to be. You have all these great ideas. And then you have kids and everything flies out the door. (laughs) It feels like, no, we can't ever really fully prepare. But I think when we're in the season of kids, it does change the amount of things that are expected, the amount of things we have to manage, the amount of things that we have to do. And so I think that does create additional stress and anxiety um, particularly for working parents and even parents who are in the home managing the household. Uh, it creates a lot of stress and anxiety. Have we lost sight of what's normal in that at certain times in your life when you are doing exams, you are planning for college, you are looking for a new job, it is a stressful time and it is normal to be a bit anxious if you've got a college interview or university interview or an exam to sit. Right, absolutely. I think One of the things that I talk about a lot is that our goal isn't to get rid of anxiety. Our goal is to move through it. The more we try to push it away, the more we try to ignore it, the more that it grows, and actually the more that it affects our bodies. And we become sicker, we become more ill, or I get migraines. If I've pushed myself too far and I get a migraine, I know that I have not pulled myself back enough and I haven't managed my time well enough. Uh, Because it's something that's a constant struggle with me, I'll be honest, to try to manage all the things that I want to do. 
right? Because I want to do it all. But I also realize more and more that I cannot. And so I know the migraine will be the first thing that'll tip me off that, okay, I did not pull back (laughs) enough or I did not schedule. Our bodies will tell us sometimes to pay attention to the emotions we're not paying attention to. So we can't just shove them away. We can't necessarily avoid them. We need to recognize them for what they are, that they're trying to send us messages. If you feel depressed, it means we're missing out. There's a loss. And so it makes sense a lot of times. So for example, for middle schoolers, it's a lot of depression, anxiety in middle schoolers because there's a lot of change. It's a lot of unsettling things that we can't know how it turns out. And so it makes sense that there's a lot of anxiety because what's more important to middle school and high schoolers is fitting in and finding your people and all of that kind of stuff. But it's also very difficult and there's a lot of change in there. And so there's a lot of times where you feel like you've missed out. You A lot of times where you're not sure, like, who am I going to talk to or who am I going to sit with lunch or is somebody going to bother me? Uh, am I going to get the good grade so I can do the things that I need to do? So there's a lot of anxiety and depression that is part of the normal cycle of adolescence. So you touched on a moment ago when you mentioned about migraines, about how the how we're feeling and how and yep. our body are connected. Because it's always a bit of a joke that psychologists mm-hmm. can't talk about movement and physiotherapists can't talk about oh, today. <laughs> Whereas so, the body are one. <laughs> right. The my I'm I come from a biopsychosocial model. So I used to work in a pediatric GI clinic. It was called the belly clinic. Um, and it was really about all the functional gastrointestinal disorders. And we know how the brains and the guts are connected, right? And we can't separate the mind and the body. I don't understand where that distinction fully came from, but we really need to kind of look at all of it. If we're not getting good sleep, if we're not taking care of our nutrition, if we're not feeling hydrated, if our physical self is not running in good shape, then our emotional and cognitive self also can't function well. Because the physical self is really going to take its energy first to try to get you to run. And then there's less left over to cope. Mm. So it's okay for physiotherapists and physical therapists to ask people, how are you? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it is. Because sometimes just listening provides an incredible amount of wherewithal for a person to be like, oh, somebody cares. Somebody maybe gets it. Somebody to say like, wow, that is a lot. To have somebody validate your experience for you, not solve it. You don't have to solve their experience when we ask people about how are you doing, but to just say, wow, that's a lot. I I can see why you're frustrated. That would make me feel anxious too. Just having that validation of our experiences helps decrease and helps us move through the emotional experiences that we have in a really positive way. And it also gives you that social connection. Yeah. So to ask somebody, how are you? And really mean it and pause. Wow. A real answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember as a junior physio, and I think I'm not alone. Everybody used to be terrified of uh, uh, touching on emotion mm-hmm. the person in front of you bursting into tears right later down the line it would just always leave a box of tissues in your room <laughs> right well and as a physio i i imagine that you run across people that are experiencing losses 
in terms of you're rehabilitating injuries or they've certainly lost some physical function, which is probably why they see you in the first place. So why wouldn't they have some challenging experiences? Why wouldn't they feel depressed or disappointed or frustrated or even have anxiety if I'm going to get back to be the person I want to do? Can I function in what I want to do? So I do think we're doing a disservice if we're not helping support some of that as well. Super, super. Thank you, Caroline. So Caroline, what would you like to see going forwards happen um, with regards to this um the, the well-being of children and teens and the support that they they and teachers and families receive as well what, mm-hmm. what do you think would be an ideal solution one of the well one of the things is increasing positive conversations and meaningful conversations about anxiety and depression and normalizing some of it i think it's just understanding the context of the world that we live in and when it makes sense to be anxious or it makes sense to be sad or makes sense to be disappointed. Uh, For example, going off to college, there's a lot of anxiety. Well, of course there's a lot of anxiety because you can't know how it's going to be until you actually do it. And so much, we just don't want to feel the negative. And so one of the things that I'd love to see is just understanding that those negative emotions are as powerful and informative as some of the ones we enjoy feeling. Mm -hmm. And so understanding our emotional selves and really understanding that we have the power, even in a difficult situation, to figure out how to make it work for us so that we're not passive and reactive, but people become more proactive. So yes, let's talk about mental health but let's make sure that it's not a prerequisite that you shouldn't feel anxious or depressed. Talking about mental health doesn't mean we're trying to avoid the feelings or fix the feelings. We're moving through the feelings. Um, so I'd like to see a little bit more of understanding that. You may understanding how to help kids cope, not fix. Because I find with a lot of parents, they it, it's very difficult to deal with the stress of a child who is in distress. And it creates a lot of anxiety in the parent, which then in turn, the kid feels. And then they feel like they shouldn't feel that way because, and the parent's doing a good job. They're trying to do what they always do, right? They want to pave the way. They want to support their kids. But I say emotions are not like skin knees. You can't just say, here's a Band-Aid, put it on and kiss it and make it better. And so as parents, what we need to learn too is that sometimes we have to sit in the suck with them and allow them to feel those experiences, to validate those experiences, but also have hope and confidence in them that they can move through them and that you can get support and stay connected. So I want to make sure that we're feeling more connected because that social connection is one of the things we lost in the pandemic. And that's a really important part of our well-being is having social connections and meaningful relationships. So I think understanding emotions, normalizing them, and then also creating meaningful conversations and relationships together, I think, are non-infrastructure ways that we can have a huge impact on our mental health and well-being. Yeah, and, and what I'm hearing is that perhaps you're describing as parents we can overprotect our children, want to wrap them in cotton wool, not want them to have any negative experience, or if it does, mm-hmm. solve it for them, and we can't. 
right in part i'm guessing the playground is a great place for this because they've just got to sort stuff out right right they just get to go do that but i feel like sometimes even on the playgrounds like when my kid was on the playground at one point i don't know they put some mulch bark or something i don't know but they said you're not supposed to run on the playground (laughs) right and so i was that is not that's that is a great example of overprotection and every year maybe not every year but somebody's going to get hurt on the monkey bars but that doesn't mean we should ban monkey bars (laughs) and so i think sometimes we are overprotective of our kids and uh and I think that the pandemic did this, created additional overprotection because there's a level of anxiety about protecting all of our kids. But then especially for our middle and, and high schoolers, or our preteens and teenagers, they spend a whole lot more time at home instead of exploring independence. And I think parents were much more involved in what they were doing and where they were going and who they were with, which again, some information is good, but it's likely some of that also has impacted their development. So they're not feeling as independent. I'm seeing that with a lot of college students, that the that first year of college is just harder than it used to be. Yeah. And then they grow up, they go to rent a house, they don't know how to do a simple thing like call a plumber or fix a broken lock. Or... Right. Have... And some of that is also expectations. Right. High school and college are not always the best times of your life, but a lot of times we have these idealized versions of what it should be and how it's supposed to go. And we forget, even when we have great experiences, I think sometimes we forget the hardships that also accompanied some of those great experiences or how long it really takes to actually develop the friendships and figure things out. And so a lot of it is also having some grace and compassion for the idea that life takes time. So it's developing patience to move through challenging situations or adjust to change or figure out who your friends are. We can both be unhappy with our situation, but also hopeful. And I think that's an important piece is you don't have to like where you're at, but it's not a resignation. But you do have to acknowledge like, oh, I don't really like this. This is kind of hard. But then you want to think about where do I have control? Yeah. And what can I do about it? Exactly. But also be patient. (laughs) (laughs) Have a plan but be patient for it to come to fruition. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I think, again, that's where we see kids and adolescents. Their brains aren't fully developed. They, They, by definition, are tend to be more impatient. (laughs) gaming and social media and all this instant access has that caused problems as well because there's no downtime to reflect and a speed of communication a speed at which you move through a game and life isn't quite like the digital world absolutely i do think that the amount of information is overwhelming too much too soon too fast is what i say with a lot of the social media And it can have a benefit because it can keep us connected in ways that maybe we weren't before, but there's also at the expense sometimes of in-person connection and knowing even how to have a conversation in person or sometimes not having that downtime so that you can reflect on things. If I had a fight with my friend at school, then I could go home 
And I didn't get my phone blowing up with a giant text string and people screenshotting what I said and sending it to everybody else. And I could take a break and have time to reflect or go do something else. But now it's 24 seven, you can be available. And so learning how to set those limits, which again, that's not a kid's and teenager's strength right now. They're learning how to develop limits, right? It's hard for adults to sometimes set limits. Um, and so I do think the access to commu like communicating over text and writing things and the immediate responding and the reacting definitely causes additional challenges um, for kids. I had a dad say this. He's part of the Father's Club that's part of our community. And he said, it's like when you got your yearbook on that last day of school and you wanted everybody to sign it. And you couldn't wait to get home and read what everybody else was saying. But that's what social media is every day. Yeah. You post something or you put something up and you're waiting to see what do people say. Yeah. And the, the, is there an impact of this in terms of dopamine levels? And Yeah. I mean, there's a definite uh there's a definite link scientifically about the number of likes triggering dopamine. It's a reward center, right? And it's a need for attention. And that's also the rise of, you've got YouTubers and you've got the TikTok videos and here, go eat an eye, a Tide Pod. Let me do something that gets me a lot of attention because that feeds my dopamine circuits mm -hmm. without really thinking through the consequences. Again, which is a natural teenage uh, type of... <laughs> brain pattern is to not really fully understand the full consequences, but we are all wanting to be validated and seek approval. And so some of that now is translated into how many likes do I get? How many friends do I have? And I have found that when I've worked with teenagers that sometimes they start to cull some of that, they're much happier. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, really quite interesting the other day. The other Sunday, my son was he's just nine. He was very frustrated. Anyway, we went back to granny and granddad's and granddad had saved chopping a tree down to be done together. So the yeah. two went off and chop a tree down. Oh my goodness. The bad mood that had been there for a set, gone, gone. Right. Like, what does not happen gaming? <laughs> right. <laughs> chopping a tree down with granddad. <laughs> right. No, being and being in nature and having physical movement. So is is really key to part of our physical and emotional well-being. I always say my trifecta of self-care is if I can walk outside with my friends, because that way I'm getting both physical movement, I'm getting time socially, and I'm getting time with nature. Um, it's my trifecta for self-care. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it happens, it is amazing. So what have you found? I know it's not what the topic of the conversation was, but what have you found? Because I'm sure there's many people listening who were thinking, well, Caroline, what do I do about the screens and the phones and the social media with my kids? Have you got any top tips to help the, the parents that are listening? Uh, one, it's harder than you think. Well, no, it's actually not harder than you think. It's as hard as you think it is probably to limit it. Uh, but I think one of the things that I like to think about is gradual introduction of any type of social media um, or even so smartphones or what have you, you can gradually 
provide some of that information and provide access to those types of things. And I think before COVID, I think we were well on the way to having that. And I think with COVID and the pandemic, then limiting our interactions to somewhat being more electronic and on social media, all of that kind of flew by the wayside. And so there was less gradual and intentional approaching to okay, should my kid have a phone? Should they have access to this? Or what about, you know, kind of thinking about those things. So I think a return to having some intentional purpose about when we introduce, and, and there's no driver's license per se for social media use, but we really do need to think about their level of responsibility and maturity and independence, and that's part of your guide. So I don't think there's any hard or fast rules. And with kids who are on social media now, I think, and using platforms at technology, I think some of it is thinking about how do we help them become good consumers of technology, right? How do they look at their own information, perhaps? So some of the questions that I might talk with teens about are, you know, monitoring their own social media use. You know, Apple's has less screen time. How much time are you using? What do you think about that? help them start to question some of those things. And yes, you might still have to set limits and say, the phone doesn't go in the bed. Let's get you a real alarm clock. You don't necessarily have to have the alarm clock, uh, your phone as an alarm clock. We can set those guidelines, but we also want them to make good choices. Because the more that we just harp on, social media is bad. You need to get off of social media. The more they're going to be drawn to it and the more that they're going to fight back. So if we can help them understand kind of what's going on and make their own decisions. Another question is, how do you feel? How do you feel when you've used social media? How do you feel when you've been online? How do you feel when you've been gaming? And let them figure that out. Is that working for you? Mm -hmm. And if it's not working, maybe do experiments. I, I'm a really big fan of doing experiments, right? For example, I might be, you know, what if we do an experiment where you put it on do not disturb, you know, for the two hours that you're doing homework? Let's just see how that works for you. So let them kind of discover what works for them. And I think you'll get more buy-in and then they'll have a healthier relationship with technology um, that can grow over time. And that being said, it starts with you, <laughs> right? So it's the whole like, if I'm drinking Diet Coke and I tell my kids soda is bad, can, right? And so you also really want to monitor good social media and technology habits in your own life. And so that's also a way that you can influence your kids because they really do pay attention more to your actions than what you say. Yeah, <laughs> I love bringing up articles, right? So there was a social media alert that the Surgeon General um, just put out. And I can use that as a way like, hey, the Surgeon General just said like social media is bad. I want to hear what you have to say, what are your thoughts? How do you use it? So a lot of it's about getting curious about what's going on with your kids before you just lay down blanket, you know, restrictions. Um, because at least if you lay down a restriction, you kind of still understand what's going on or you might tweak that restriction, right? Because sometimes they're like, well, if I don't have access to my phone all week, then I also can't get invited places. And there's some truth to that. So how do you navigate that? Maybe it's not an all or none type thing. And so I think that's where you really want to collaborate rather than direct. And I feel like that is apparent is the goal of when kids are preteen to teenagers, you move from being a director and a manager 
to a collaborator and consultant. And if you're a collaborator and a consultant, what's the very first thing you have to do before you do anything? You have to listen, right? You have to get curious. You have to understand what's going on before you can actually intervene. <laughs> Easier said than done. It is. But if you keep that mindset, yeah, yeah, yeah. if I have to get curious rather than react, which again is great modeling, right? Because you want your teenager to get curious too. You don't want your teenagers to react. So again, as a parent, the more you take care of yourself and your emotional health, the better your kid's emotional health might be. And you mentioned you used to work at the at a GI clinic. Yep. Presuming also you've seen significant changes in behaviors in terms of what we eat and how we mm -hmm. school our bodies. Again, it always fascinates me that we are taught more about pharmacy and pharmacology than we are taught about how we fuel our bodies, um, which again, I think as a physical therapist is absolutely ridiculous. But anyway. Right. Um, what did you pick up there that was vital to not do or to do? In terms of regards to diet and what we eat, you know, I didn't deal as much with that part of it because I worked alongside with a pediatric gastroenterologist, and and he would kind of direct some of the that. It was still a little bit of mind body, but still a little bit of integration. And so I dealt with more thinking about how stress affects both our gut, right? Whenever we have increased stress, it affects our guts, mm -hmm. right? And it affects how our, how our, whether we feel nauseous, whether we get constipated, any of those things. And so my goal to some degree is, well, sometimes you can't, like, I can't just make the pain go away, but there are things that we could do that kind of reset that cycle of, I have pain, my guts don't work well, which creates more pain and more disability. And then you kind of get in this downward spiral. And so the pediatric gastroenterologist would kind of help much more on the medical side of saying, yes, you're doing things well, this is what you need to be doing. And then I would help more on how do we cope with not only pain, but other things that are going on in there. And so I would also do some biofeedback. And so we would be working in the body in terms of thinking about sleep and other things, those are also really important. So it's it's a holistic approach. So I'm not sure if that answered your question exactly, but. <laughs> what I'm hearing consistently is that you're really talking about helping people get back in the driving seat of their life. Because yeah. Ended up being, well, certainly here the phrase nanny state is used. We've ended up becoming very dependent on third party solving everything for us, whether that's the state, whether that's our parents, mm -hmm. whoever. And we've got to all get back in the driving seat of our lives and help our kids get back in the driving seat of their life. Yeah. What is it that I can control right now? Yeah. Right. I may not be able to make the change I want to make right now. Maybe I'm in a really terrible situation. But you may not be able to just say like, all right, well, tomorrow I'm going to change that. Right. But you can start laying the groundwork for maybe making changes. But you can also start laying the groundwork of if I'm in this super stressful environment, what's the input that I need to recharge? right? What do I need to streamline so I have less stress? I can't take away this part, but how can I kind of limit the suck, if you will, <laughs> and, and create more input that gives me, recharges myself? 
And for practitioners that have been put in there and very specifically, I suppose, doctors been put in the expert seat. Yeah. Quite a a thing to overcome to actually give the responsibility back to the client in front of you to ask them what they feel they need, what they feel their body needs, rather than be the provider of a solution. Right. I like to think about, I kind of joke that my job's to work myself out of a job. And I say, my goal is to figure out what's not working for you, but also what is working for you. And then I'm going to give you ideas. Here's what you can do. And you come back to me and you get to tell me, like, how did that work for you? Some things are going to work fantastic and some things might not work. So it's also discovering what works for you because it's not a one size fits all approach. And I'm sure you run across that um, in your physio practice too. You might prescribe an exercise and they may go home and say, oh, that was too easy or I couldn't do it because of X, Y, and Z. And then you adapt and tailor. Absolutely. (laughs) Caroline, can you summarize this conversation in a minute or two? Um, All feelings are normal. That's probably the number one thing. And they're trying to tell us something. And our goal is to move through them, not avoid them. And one of the ways to move through them is to seek out support to get validation uh, and take care of ourselves physically and figure out what we can control. Thank you very much. If the listeners would like to hear more from you, where can they do that? Um, They can do that um, at my website, which is carolinedanda.com. I'm on LinkedIn at Dr. Caroline Danda and Instagram and Facebook. So all of that is also on my website and I've got an email on there as well. I love having these conversations. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about things that I'm so passionate about is, like I said, just really helping families and kids get unstuck and understand themselves so they can move forward. And we can be grateful that Facebook didn't exist when we were 14. Right, right. Yes, that's a whole thing now. (laughs) 